Sunday Takeaway with Sunil Badami. Sunday Takeaway. Now don't tell anyone, but today we're delving into the world of secrets. Have you ever kept a secret? Was it a harmless little white lie or something much more serious? Or has someone ever tried to keep a secret from you that you found out about later? Do you ever wish that we could just do away with all these secrets that we try to keep? Well, from surprise parties to life-changing news, secrets always seem to be a part of our lives, and today we'll be cracking a few open. We'll talk to a woman who was spied on by ASIO and then got to read the file they kept on her 30 years later. We'll hear what it was like to see one of the world's biggest cover-ups firsthand, and we'll meet a man who tried to keep his HIV diagnosis a secret from his parents, only for them to find out on their own anyway as we delve into secrets and secret lives on Sunday Takeaway. I miss you so much There's no one insane And we're still making love In my secret And that was Leonard Cohen with In My Secret Life. Well, today we're talking all about secrets, but can you imagine what it would be like to be spied on as you go about your day-to-day business? Never knowing if your photo was being taken as you stood in the street or met up with friends and family, or even if someone was listening into your private phone calls or checking all your emails. Luckily for most of us, um, it's something we probably don't have to worry about. But for Meredith Bergman, it turned out to be a reality. Meredith is a Labor Party member and the former president of the New South Wales Legislative Council. She's also the editor of the book Dirty Secrets, Are ASIO Files. Dirty Secrets is a collection of essays by Australian academics, writers and activists who finally read their own ASIO files 30 years after they were put together. The book was released in April this year. And Meredith joins us now to tell us about her experience. Hi, Meredith. Hi, Sunil. The first question I've got to ask is, um, did anyone follow you on your way to the studio? <laughs> well, of course, that's what I'm asked all the time now. Um, I think probably ASIO's reasonably interested in how the book's being um, received, but it's a sort of a reputational risk issue for them rather than them wanting to find out how, how we are politically plotting against them. But, um, no, I doubt if uh, I was followed this morning. <laughs> now, just before we um, get into it, I, I guess my big confusion is, is what's a- I've heard different letters thrown around, you know, ASIO and ASIS. What's the difference? Well, ASIO reports on um, the domestic activities of citizens in Australia. That's the main. And ASIS is for... Look, I don't. I have never set out to be an expert on 
what's happening now, but but ASIS is obviously much more uh, externally international interested. Interested. Um, all I was interested in was what was ASIO doing, um, and why I say thirty to forty years ago is because of the thirty year rule which allows people to apply for their ASIO files. And that's being changed now to a 20-year rule. So, And it's over a period it's being changed. So you can now apply for files that are about 25, 26 years old. So how did you learn about your ASIO file? I uh, knew, always knew I had one. But um, when Bob Carr uh, abolished the... Abolished the state special branch. That's in, the that's the former Premier, New South Wales Premier yeah, Bob Carr Bob, and when, Foreign Minister. Yes, when he abolished the state special branch in 1996, and of course the state special branches acted as a sort of uh, the state adjunct of ASIO. They really collected a lot of the information. He abolished it, and then uh, people were able to. There was a short period where they could apply for their files, and I was one of the few people who did apply for my file, and it was a. An eye-opener to me. It was like someone had written my diary for me for about... uh, Well, they were still following me when I was a Member of Parliament. They they were following me right up to 1996, which I find extraordinary. So did you suspect that you had an ASIO file? Uh, Well, I knew I did because I I had been arrested many times. I was actively involved in anti-Vietnam, anti-Springbok. The, the early feminist, see the early feminist movement. I was a, a seventy-eighter, you know, the, the, one of the people who was um, involved with the early gay and gay rights movement as a as a civil libertarian issue. I was involved in everything that ASIO saw as wicked and terrible. Because don't forget their their remit was to uh, to look at subversion, and they had no idea what subver- subversion was. So someone like me, who I was a political activist on the left, um, interested in social justice issues, they saw me as someone engaged in subversion. I mean, you were famously involved in the um, anti-Springbok protests of the 70s. Mm. So those big ticket kind of things like the gay Mardi Gras and the Springboks Mm. would have been included. Mm. But what other activities did they include? You mentioned it being like a diary. Absolutely everything. As I keep saying to people... It's the metadata of those days. You know, before computers, they went to meetings uh, where meetings were taking place and they wrote down every number plate of every car in the, you know, about four blocks away. They wrote, they were incessantly compiling lists. It was really make-work activity. I mean, at one stage, they record that my car was parked outside 26 Dargan Street, Glebe at 5.45am in the morning. You know, it was my house. It was my... (laughs) And they report that I'm walking down Oxford Street with two friends and then I turn into a bottle shop. You know, this is the sort of... It wasn't secrets. In fact, when I was asked to be on this program to talk about secrets, I thought, well, what actual secrets did they find out in that in my big book of, um, you know, 450,000 words or whatever it is, what did they find out that was a secret? And... They, there was one secret in my file that I didn't know they knew, and that was that I had been part of a group responsible for, you know, a sort of an urban guerrilla um, activity of throwing a, a dive bomb into a swimming pool um, to stop a uh, Australian team being chosen to go to South Africa. It was during the anti-apartheid period. That was the only secret that I had that they found out. Everything else that 
was in my file, and it was a huge file. I mean, how long did it go for this? It will say that when did they start surveying? They started in nineteen uh, July nineteen sixty eight. So they basically surveilled you for nearly thirty years. Yes. Oh, well, who knows when they finished? Because it's only it's the it's only because I have up to nineteen ninety six with the um, with the special branch file that they they were following me while I was doing press conferences in um, you know the press gallant gallery at Parliament House, and I kept thinking, which sort of bored journalist or sort of impecunious um, cameraman was then supplying stuff to to uh, ASIO and getting a bit of payment for it. I mean, it's very weird stuff. And and what... I was in a mainstream political party. I I mean, to me... And, and what I think... When you read the book, what you realise is that um, it wasn't secrets they found out from us. We found out secrets about them. We found... I found out, you know, reading the various files that when Frank Hardy was found not guilty in his famous criminal defamation trial... About Power, about power, power Without, without glory, glory. Which was a, technically about John Wren, his, yes. his widow, John Wren, the, the bookie yes. and boxing promoter. And it was a criminal defamation file, not an, uh, trial, not an ordinary sort of um, civil defamation. So he, he would have gone to jail if he was found guilty. Then the head of ASIO, Brigadier Bri- uh, Spry, calls for the ASIO files on all the jurors. So he was, you know, the cornerstone of the British uh, law system, the jury, was being investigated by ASIO. I mean, it's extraordinary stuff. And and uh, um, Jean McLean, a later MP, discovers that she lost a job through ASIO intervention. Cole Cooper discovers that he was moved from one part of, tells, you know, you know the, the old PMG, to another part of the PMG because he was considered a risk because his parents were communist. So we found out secrets that they had rather than they found out secrets about us. I mean, our lives were fairly open. As Mark Aaron says, they kept getting his girlfriends wrong and he kept saying, why didn't they just ask him? I mean, did you, with all that surveillance over that period of time, did you ever, like, kind of recognise particular faces that seemed out of place? Did they have regular agents following you? Well, we knew the special branch guys because they were always there. There was one guy that always wore sort of brown terrelene trousers and he was he was actually quite a nice bloke. See, don't forget, these people were public servants, a lot of these ASIO people. They were just civil servants. But he was always there. We knew he was the special branch bloke and he just on me. And the head of the special branch in New South Wales, Fred Longbottom, became quite friendly. In fact, I was invited to his funeral. Um, <laughs> and, and I actually have pictures of me with him at book launches and things. It was this weird... And Anna Funda writes about it. She talks about how in East Germany sometimes... In her book Stasiland. Sometimes the Stasi guys almost justified what they were doing by saying that they were helping these people that they were... It was a strange sort of feeling that, that they had some sort of responsibility for these people. So it was a very weird relationship. You're on Sunday Takeaway with me, Sunil Badami, and we're talking about government secrecy and spying on citizens with Meredith Bergman. Meredith, did anything? how did it feel when you first opened your ASIO file? What, what thoughts were going through your mind You know, when you went into the archive and you opened the folder? Look... 
I applied for my ASIO file many, many months before I opened it up. It was a, it was a big brown paper parcel and it just sat there and I kept thinking, why am I reluctant to open this parcel? And then I talked to other people and some of them still haven't opened their files. Anne Kerthoy says she just can't bring herself to do it. My sister Verity sort of refused and I had to sort of do it with her and then do a Q&A with her rather than... And she said, because she was in a little Trotskyist group, and she said that what she was worried about was discovering stuff, discovering who the informant was in the little Trotskyist group. And in the end, she was quite relieved because there was no no informant in the Canberra chapter because there was only five of them. But there was an inf- definitely an informant in the in the Sydney branch of IS. And she gets quite anxious about who that could be. But why I insisted on having her in the book was because her photo file was magnificent. Uh, ten photos, all of her standing on a beach in a bikini. That that was that was her ASIO photo file. Well, I imagine it must get pretty boring, you know, standing around watching someone go about their daily business. You might, you know, end up clicking a few for a bit of fun. <laughs> anyway, getting back to the question you actually asked me, when I did open it many months later, in fact, it might have been a year later, I was just fascinated. I felt like Faust looking into the bowl of time, you know, that, Thing and in Goethe's play, yes, yes, and um, seeing my youth uh, uh, un- unraveled in front of or shown to me. Uh, uh, this and I'm reading it like 30, 40 years later, and in great detail. And it was um, both thrilling in a way and distressing. I mean, nothing about me distressed me, although they were quite. Um, rude about my appearance and things like that. They kept saying I was skinny and untidy and smoked and chain-smoked. And But the thing that really distressed me was how much emphasis was put on um, checking out my friends. They, they stole my address book and went through every single person in my address book to check them out. And one of them, who was just a family, a political family friend who happened to work for the Navy, I think probably destroyed his his career arising out of that did you when you um were reading it um did you worry as well about you know possibly being betrayed by friends and were you yes there was look there was definitely an informant in a a little group I was in called the Southern Africa Liberation Centre and we very quickly knew who it worked out who it was and it was a great relief to me because I had never liked him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I think it would have been awful to discover that someone you knew and liked was informing on you. But um, Penny Lock in the book, Penny Lockwood discovers that the man she was having a serious romantic relationship with was an ASIO uh, agent, and, and in the end he calls it off with her and then leaves ASIO. So it's... It, that would have been, and, and she she writes about it as if it was absolutely shocking for her. This is Sunday Takeaway with Sunil Badami on ABC Local Radio. 
And we're, I guess you could say, whispering about ASIO surveillance with Meredith Bergman, former um, legislative New South Wales Legislative Council member, activist, and the editor of the book, Dirty Secrets Are ASIO Files, which is very similar to the recent documentary on the ABC, Persons of Interest, which seemed to have every person of I would say interesting person of the last 30 or 40 years was involved. You know, Frank Hardy, Jim Bacon, Gary Foley. Peter Cundall, the gardener, Anne Summers, the feminist, who was totally shocked when she read her file and it said, Anne Summers is fashionably but not (laughs) (laughs) well-dressed. But her file was really interesting because that was really them following people who were involved with women's liberation, which... Gosh, you know, in what way were they subversive? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, Meredith? Because, I mean, it seems like a lot of time and money was devoted to following people who, as you say, were subversive, people who we admire today for taking a strong stand on social justice issues like, you know, gay rights and um, anti-apartheid rights and feminism and stuff like that. That's that's what I mean. They had absolutely no idea what subversion was. Um, The worst case I came across was a four-and-a-half-year-old called Jonathan Reed. What, they surveyed a four-and-a-half-year-old? Yes, they they wrote, is um, uh, an active propagandist and organises meetings away from teachers' grasp. Four-and-a-half. I want to meet this guy because he's about (laughs) my age now. And and, and Michael Kirby gets his first... What, did they stake out the cubby house? No, it was the school. It was the school. It was uh, uh, Annandale um, Primary School. Four and a half. Four and a half. Look, I, I, there are th- some things in the files that just make you gasp with amazement. So Michael Kirby, the former High Court judge. Yes, he, he gets mentioned when he's 12 because his um, step-grandfather was a member of the Communist Party. And at the that, age of 12? At the age of 12, yes. I mean, they're not... Uh, it, it's about collecting, it's metadata. They're just collecting fact after fact and they're not good at putting it together. Like at one stage in Anne Summers' file, they say, you know, capacity for violence nil. At that stage, they should have closed her file and moved on because that is the question. And after the second Hope uh, Royal Commission into ASIO, they they do sort of change... Um, rooting out subversion to looking for politically motivated violence. And I suspect if we decide we need to have a secret intelligence agency, then looking for politically motivated violence is what they should be targeted at. Well, not, that, not for civil disobedience in the streets. Well, I mean, that's the big thing that's happening at the moment with the government's, you know, revised terror laws, metadata collection, you know, being able to look into our emails and without a warrant and stuff like that. Um, of course, we don't want any kind of political violence or terrorism, mm. especially in Australia. Mm. But the phrase, you know, qui custodias custodiate, you know, who watches the watchman comes to mind. We've already had two royal commissions yeah. into ASIO. Yes, well, now there is the um, Inspector General, and there's, of course, there's a lot of discussion about how well resourced and how uh, you know how well that person can do their job. But in the in the days of what I was looking at, there really wasn't a monitoring um, body for ASIO, which is why they like there's there's a, quite a lot of evidence of improper activity by ASIO working 
to the Conservative government of the time rather than working to their brief of, you know, rooting out subversion. Like, in my file, it's uh, it's quite clear that they're sending in uh, at a time when uh, questions are being asked in the House about this organisation called the Rhodesian Information Centre, and I'm part of the protest group against it. They're... Uh, they're sending information to the Prime Minister's department about my activity. ASIO's doing that, and really they shouldn't have been because it was nothing to do with subversion. Um, they were t- tapping Jim Cairns's phone. It, that becomes clear from, uh, you know, later Deputy Prime Minister, they were tapping his phone. That becomes clear from Jean McLean's file. So they were obviously doing improper things. Now, who was watching that? Who was uh, being the role of the um that that now that we now have not nothing that's why the two hope royal commissions happened and hope himself uh, is not terribly happy that that is the only oversight of of ASIO and as i say he was scathing about their inability to file <laughs> <sighs> In terms of, um, you know, uh, the people that they surveyed, were there any right-wing activists or political figures or anything like that? Yes, the interesting thing is they never seem to make much uh, distinction between who were the left and who were the right. Like, you'd you'd look at a list of people at a demonstration. Your your own file would have, you know, a a list of people. And and I think, oh, I don't know those people. And then you suddenly realise that intermingled with a, with a list of all your sort of party mates were were um, Nazis and uh, other right-wing groups. And there's an occasion in my file where they're sitting outside my house and they see the Nazis arrive, get out, throw a brick through the window, paint the words Red Rat on the footpath um, and then leave. But they don't stop them doing this. They just report it all. And uh, I've got a wonderful photo of me sort of scrubbing. We, we actually changed it to Fred Rat because it sounded nicer, <laughs> more friendlier. <laughs> and then there's a photo of me just scrubbing it off. But so they were watching the right. I haven't re- I haven't really looked at the right files because I was too busy looking at the the many many pages of files that uh, for, for my uh, for the people that are in the book. But um, they certainly weren't trying to stop them do- doing this stuff. You mentioned before, you know, a lot of people felt a little bit, I guess, kind of um, trepidatious about looking at their files, mm. um, especially like your sister Verity, wondering mm. if anyone she knew or liked mm. may have betrayed her. Mm. Did anyone ever feel left out that they didn't have an ASIO file? Oh, yes, of course. Um, Frances Letters writes a wonderful chapter about discovering she didn't have a file, whereas I think she did, actually, because she appears in that in all our files, with, with numbers beside her name. But they, they've told her she didn't have a file and she was mortified. But but they did ask her to be an agent. They took her to lunch and asked her to be an ASIO agent. And so she's written about that with great delight. Um, and there are another friend of mine, her father was approached, you know, do you think Kerry would do spying for us? And the father laughed and said, no, I think it would probably appear in Onisoir, the Sydney University newspaper rather than... So they were trying to get people who were obviously part of the left to be... And, of course, Graham Dunstan, who was a very significant figure in the left, has has, has said 
sense that he was giving information to ASIO. So why would he do that? Why would he admit it? I don't know. Well, why would he do it, and then why would he admit it? Don't know. In fact, one of the things I've regretted is not chasing. He's, he's quite hard to get hold of. He's, you know, he's an old hippie up north now. Um, but I'd love to ask him that question. What did, were you surprised in that way by any of the revelations in your files or the stories that people told you? Look, I think we always knew that that there were people uh, informing on us. The guy that I quickly recognised as being an informer, um, he, I think he had um, visa issues. He was from uh, an Asian country and I, and he had visa issues and I think that's how they got him. They just said, okay, you're out unless you agree to, you know, supply information and uh, and we'll let you stay in the country. I, th- I think they had to find someone that they had something over or someone with a very right-wing bent. But if someone with a very conservative bent suddenly turned up in your yeah. organisation, you'd, you'd worry about them. They record some very funny conversations where Peter McGregor, who was a wonderful anti-apartheid activist, he advises everyone to look suspiciously at people in suits. But this was recorded in, in the ASIO file, so there was obviously someone there not in a suit writing all this down and reporting <laughs> it to ASIO. <laughs> I mean, it seems almost comical, you know, like those, you know, uh, accounts of the FBI following this actor or that person Mm -hmm. around. Tell me, what do you think the take-home, finally, what do you think the take-home message of the book could be for people of my generation? Well, in a funny way, the book has become a bit of a social history of that period and and the activists of that period have been really pleased that it's all been written down about all the amazing stuff that was happening at that time. But the message about a security organisation is if you're going to have a security organisation, they have to be the cleverest, uh, most ethical, best trained and best resourced people you can have because otherwise you end up with a bunch of, you know dopes that were following us around and reporting on us and you know you've got to have a highly skilled secret intelligence organization if if the nation decides they they're going to have one you're on sunday takeaway with sunil badavi on abc local radio Thanks to Meredith Bergman for talking to us about her brush with government secrecy. You can find out more about Meredith's book, Dirty Secrets, our ASIO files, by clicking on her name on our website or our Facebook page. Sunday Takeaway with Sunil Badami. Dami here on Sunday Takeaway with you on ABC Local Radio. It feels like a little bit of a secret, doesn't it? <laughs> what was the biggest secret you've ever tried to keep and, and failed? I mean, sometimes uh, the times we really want our loved one's support are also the times we, I guess, try to keep secret. Maybe it's the big job opportunity you don't want to talk about until you know you've got it or... Something more serious, not just something that you might be ashamed of, but something you just don't know how to handle. 
Well, today we're joined by Kaya Hanley, the morning's producer at ABC Central West New South Wales, and regular takeaway of Fred Hooper, the cross-media reporter for 936 ABC Hobart, to find out about some of the biggest secrets a person can keep and what happens when you stop keeping them. Hi, Kaya. Hi, Fred. Hi there. How are you? Now, have you ever tried keeping a secret, Kaya? Are you good at keeping secrets? No. So I don't try because (laughs) they inevitably lead to failure. And uh, I think with secrets, failure is not really an option. So it's better just to be completely open and out there. And I haven't really done anything, you know, or had anything happen in my life super exciting to this point where... uh, you know, that's really been necessary to hide from, you know, family members, like you were saying, a, a job interview or, or perhaps, you know, a pregnancy in the first three months is often secret as well until you hit that uh, that point where you feel comfortable talking about people. So I haven't really been there or, or really needed to do that. Have you ever uh, had, you know, given away a secret that's kind of blown up? No, I'm the best secret keeper. From other for other people's secrets, right? So you can keep other people's I can secrets. Keep you just secrets, not your own. Just not just not my own. I get too excited about things going on in my life. I guess. <laughs> what about you, Fred? I've got one of each. I think I've blown a massive surprise, and I've also given away a ridiculous secret. Which one do you want to hear first? Well, Fred, let's go for the um, the big secret, and then we'll hear about the surprise. Okay, the secret that I gave away, this is is very, very trivial, but when we used to leave the house as kids, we would always, uh, mum and dad would put a key into one of the boots at the back porch as like a spare key so that the the next person could get back in and we all knew where it was, right? Yeah. Um, This is so silly. So I've I've taken the key and it must have been, I'm not sure why I even did this, but I put the key into the boot and then I thought, oh, wait on, how's mum going to know where the key is? So I wrote a note and said there's a key in the boot and stuck it on the door. So when mum got back, she, she could see there's a note there saying there's a key in the door, a key in the boot. Um, so kind of pointless secret to have, really, if you're going to tell everyone where it is. It is a clever spot to hide it because most people put it under the gnome or, you know, the mat or the electricity box. I'll keep that in mind. Thanks for the yeah, secret. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, tell us, what was the big surprise you blew? Well, I got an invitation um, for a 50th birthday party. This is a few years ago. It was one of my friend's mum's uh, 50th birthday party. And I didn't see on the inv- invitation anywhere that it was a surprise. So I, And I used to know all my friend's numbers, just their, their landline. So I just jumped on the phone and went bang, 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 bang. And and his mum answered the phone. Oh. And, and, and I said, oh, yeah, g'day, it's, it's Fred. I'm just letting you know that I'm coming to the, the party. You know, oh. I'm, I'll be there. And she's going, what what party? And I'm going, you know, your fiftieth. I still didn't click on right. So I'm and and she's going, right, okay. So yeah, and that's when I knew that I'd blown it big time. Oh, Fred, did it, what happened in the end? Did your friends find out that you told her, or was she, did she oh, keep your secret? No, no, she told them. Yeah, absolutely, she told oh. them, and and so I was I was the villain. But that's all right. It was it was still a great night. So it was uh, just not a secret anymore, unfortunately. Sunday Takeaway with Sunil Badami on ABC Local Radio. Funnily enough, I actually have just started um, helping out with the reading group at my daughter's kindergarten class. And I tell you what, you find out a lot about everybody's mummy and daddy that I don't think they want you to know. And at first I was kind of really excited. I came back to my wife and said, do you know what so-and-so's dad does? And, and she said, you know that our kids are telling all the, the other parents about us. And I suddenly thought, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Regular takeaway at 
and cross-media reporter Fred Hooper is based in Hobart and he recently met a man called Ricky Meerding who tried to keep what he thought was a very uh, dark secret. At just 20 years of age, Ricky Meerding was diagnosed at, as HIV positive. Ricky tried to keep his secret uh, from everyone, but most of all, he tried to hide it from his parents. And just the thought of them finding out terrified him. Fred, firstly, um, how did you meet Ricky? I met Ricky through the Hobart Human Library. It's uh, like a, a bit of a, a group of people who, who visit schools and, um, and other organisations and tell, they've got human books and they tell their sort of interesting story and try and, um, you know, I guess break down some sort of barriers that people might have about different people in, in the community. So that's where I met uh, Ricky to start with. He's one of the human books here. So um, tell us about the moment that Ricky got his diagnosis. Well, it was uh, Ricky had broken up with his sort of first um, uh, long-term, in, after his first term, first term, sorry, long-term relationship, He, you know, that ended. He said that he started to... Um, you know, but he was very sexually active, basically, and he said he was didn't have much care for. Well, it was only sexually... he was only a young bloke. Yeah, he was only I think twenty at that stage. So he, yeah. you know, he didn't really have much sort of care, I guess, for sexually transmitted diseases at that stage. That's what he said, and he was being quite reckless. And a friend of his said, "Look, you know, maybe you should go and get yourself tested because you could end up with some sort of, um, you know, something here because you're being so uh, sexually active." And he he honestly said that you know he had no idea that you could catch anything from from doing this kind of activity. So he went to the sexual health clinic here in Hobart and and they did some um, tests on him, quite intrusive intrusive tests. And I think if he had have known beforehand what they were going to do, he probably wouldn't have gone. He said, um, which is quite remarkable. But he went along, got tested, and then about a week later um, he got the diagnosis that he was in fact HIV positive. So and he said that week was just you know it was huge. Like he said. He knew what the risks were then because the nurse had told him what could potentially happen, and that week was just massive for him, he said. I mean, it must just be devastating, especially at that age, at any age to find out that you've got a disease like AIDS, but especially when you're so young. I mean, how did he not know about those things? I know that Tasmania was the last state in Australia to legalise homosexuality, not until like the mid-90s, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right, exactly. Um, and I believe it was uh, uh, the guys, uh, Rodney Croom, that's right, he was the, the big advocate for that. But um, And I think, I'm not sure why Ricky wasn't aware of this, but it's it's just, you know, I guess it's maybe it's just a generational thing that, you know, I know that certainly when I was growing up it was a, it was certainly well known and I think everyone probably remember the, uh, the Grim Reaper ads that were on TV mm. in the late 80s, I think it was, or early 80s. Um, where the Green Reaper goes bowling and, you know, they, they talk about the statistics of um, HIV AIDS at that stage. And, you know, I remember it quite vividly, but I'm not sure what, what happened there, why Ricky wasn't aware of this. Tasmania is a pretty small place and I can I imagine that the gay community must be a pretty small community. Um, how did he... Was he going to keep it secret or did he tell people? Yeah, he wanted to initially keep it secret. What he said to me was that he felt a real sense of um, of shame and embarrassment as well, the fact that he didn't know um, and the fact that he was a little bit maybe, um, you know, he, he should have taken more precautions, I suppose. And he wanted to keep it secret. He probably told a couple of people, maybe his friends, I think it was, close to him. But other than that, he was just going to 
you know, at the time he was thinking, okay, this is what I need to do. I need to keep it secret. I can't tell anybody. If I tell my parents, they're going to be highly embarrassed and they're going to be, you know, ashamed of what I've done. Um, and that, you know, they're so proud of me at the moment. So this is going to change things. So he, he just, he was terrified of telling his parents. Now, did his parents know he was gay? They knew he was gay at that stage. I think it was about a year earlier. He had, um, you know, openly admitted, look, this is what, this is what's uh, going on with me. And, and, and everyone was aware of this. So that was out in the open. Um, but the fact that he had HIV, no, that was not, that was unknown at that stage. So how did they find out? So Ricky was at work one day and he returned home. Um, he walked into the kitchen and his mum and dad were sitting at the table. Um, his dad was standing behind his mum who was sitting down and his mum had a letter in her, in her hand. And this is Ricky telling us about the moment when he realised his parents knew and what was going through his mind at that time. I remember when I was out at work, my parents opened up the letter without my permission and then I came home after work and I saw my mom and my dad at the kitchen table and my mom had the letter in her hand and my father told me to sit down and my heart went up into my throat and I was so scared because I never wanted to tell my parents about what it is that I had because I didn't want to thrust that burden onto them. And I remember I sat down at the kitchen table and I looked at them and I cried and my mom cried and they were angry at me. They were angry at me that I, that I had it and they were angry at themselves for the shame that they thought that there was something they could have done in order to better protect myself against something like this. Uh, now, wait, uh, his parents opened his mail? Yeah, that's right. This is probably something that um, a lot of people have mentioned as well after the story. Um, I put put this online and it went on, on radio as well. People have been sort of, in a way, outraged that his parents opened his mail, but um, that's, you know, this is just the way it went. Ricky lived with his parents at, at that stage and, you know, that, look, that's what happened. I don't know um, what the situation was between what the relationship was at that stage. I don't know why they opened it, but that's what, yeah, that's what they did, unfortunately. So, you know, there must have been such a churn of emotions on both sides, you know, shame, sorrow, anger. How did they work through all that? I, Ricky said that they didn't take it as negatively as as he had thought. He was, you know, he was really obviously kind of, um, you know, he had his own um, issues with it, dealing with this and and basically trying to to hide it from his parents. He was so, I guess, so devastated about it. Um, I think that, you know, slowly they just, they realised that there isn't much that they can do. I mean, this is what they have to deal with. And, and they sort of came around to, to just supporting him eventually, I think. And that's what, that's all he wanted. And that's, and that's what they gave him in the end. Just, just sort of unconditional support for this, I suppose. Where are they all now? And have you spoken to Ricky since then about how he um, feels about them knowing, you know, now? I, th- I think he's he's okay with it now. He doesn't seem to have any any issues. Obviously, I think you know if he had his time again, he would probably change things. But now, in his situation, he's got no issue with his parents knowing what's happened or you know about the diagnosis. So, um, and I know I have, look. I spoke to Ricky probably a couple of months ago now, and I think the thing that he's doing is, you know, with this Hobart Human Library, he's going around visiting different groups within the community and telling his story and sort of spreading the awareness of it. So he's kind of used it in a positive way, I suppose. He hasn't kind of 
shut himself away, which is the whole reason I was able to speak to him. He hasn't shut himself away and decided not to to talk about it. He's he's going out there and I guess on, I guess you say on the front foot and 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 trying to spread the word of this and how what what happened to him and maybe how other people can change their lives as well. This is Sunday Takeaway on ABC Local Radio with Sunil Badami. The Tiananmen Square Massacre in 1989 is still one of the biggest secrets in history. As much as we know about it, there's still a lot we don't know. We can't even be sure how many people died. And in fact, information about the massacre is guarded so strongly that China still forbids discussion of the protests and blocks any searches related to Tiananmen Square or 1989 on the internet behind the so-called Great Bamboo Firewall. But 25 years ago, Gregson Edwards had a front row seat to the tragedy when he was working at the Australian Embassy in Beijing. Now living in Orange, Gregson marked the 25th anniversary of the massacre on the 4th of June this year by telling his story with his former colleagues on ABC TV's Foreign Correspondents. And he elaborated on his experience with ABC Central West New South Wales morning show producer, Kaya Handley. So, Kaya, what was Gregson Edwards's role at the embassy in Beijing at the time? Yeah, he was a media advisor at the Australian embassy based in Beijing. And I think it's interesting following on from um, Fred's story that this is more a collective secret as opposed to a, an individual one. It was one that he and his embassy staff have kept until, as you said, 25 years on when they first told their story on um, on, for, on foreign correspondent in, uh, in June. Why do they keep their secret for so long? Look, I... I don't really know, and Gregson didn't really go into it, but I guess there's a a lot of... um We've seen Australia over the last 25 years really build their their foreign relationship with China. And so I guess there's a lot of um, political issues there that they want to uh, tread carefully on. But also a lot of these people went back to work in Beijing after uh, the Tiananmen Square massacre. So I guess their safety and their ability to do their job in that country also depended on it. And it was something that they shared together. It's not like they were sharing it, they, they were living it on their own. So it perhaps felt a little bit special to them, a little bit um, symbolic of what they went through as a group and, and how they've moved on and how their lives have changed in 25 years. But it was quite a powerful story to tell on the 25th anniversary earlier this year. What was the mood like leading up to the tensions erupting in Tiananmen? And and, and just give us a quick recap. Do you know why they happened? Yeah, look, Gregson uh, as I, was working in Beijing at the time and he said that China was a very different place back in 1989 to what it is now. Life was pretty basic for 99% of the people and after the death of a senior Communist Party official, students began filing into Tiananmen Square to c- commemorate this libertarian and protest for more freedom. So it was following on from the the death of someone that they quite respected. It started as a commemoration of this life and the achievements that, that he had done in terms of liberating a little bit Chinese people. And then as it kind of wound, kept going throughout May, Gregson said that you could see the square and it was filled with tens of thousands and children, uh, of students who, like we're seeing at the moment over in, uh, in, in China, just kind in of Hong sat Kong. there. Yeah, that's right. Kind of sat there and uh, weren't doing much, but their presence would, were definitely felt. And he said that you knew at some point something was going to give it. And that came when um, then Premier berated the students. That's Lee Pung. That's right, berated the, the students and uh, said, get out of here or, 
you know, or else. And that's when the, those uh, tensions really started to escalate. I mean, you know, all of a sudden there was a media blackout in China in 1989. We knew something was happening. There's that famous image of the man with the shopping bag standing in front of the PLA tanks. What did um, Gregson see when everything started turning violent down there? It was it was difficult for them because they had their own jobs as well to get back to the embassy and uh, you couldn't actually get to the square very easily once uh, tension started happening. But you could hear gunshots and there, it, it's alleged that the, the Chinese government started playing the sound of gunshots over loudspeakers into the square to sort of really rile people up and rile their own soldiers up. And Gregson's, as a, as a media advisor, his main... I guess, goal was to get this information out. He knew there was a blackout. He knew that uh, that the international media would not be hearing about this and China would do everything that it could to make sure that it didn't get out. So he really took that next step and took what he could and left and tried to get it out to to the world's media. So how did he manage to do it and why was it so important to him to get it out? Because there was a story unravelling, there was, you know, this big story, a massacre happening and no one was aware of it, which meant that China couldn't be held responsible, I guess. So Gregson, he said that uh, in his time in China, he'd lost uh, quite a bit of weight and he still had some of his old jackets that were uh, too big for him. So he pretty much... Yes, like a drug smuggler, but an information smuggler taped these tapes of images and information to his chest, put his big jacket on and uh, got out of the country. He arrived in uh, an international airport. I don't remember which one it is. And just found someone and said, I need you to give this to an international media company. Can you do this for me? And then he hightailed it back to Beijing. And and he's one of the, the reasons that... We've seen that image of the man with a, a sh- shopping bag standing in front of a tape. And was, it, was that the, the his tank. image? No, I don't. I don't believe it was his image. I think he smuggled out more uh, more video footage that uh, he was able to capture and um, document information. But without people like Gregson and other people who risked their lives to do this, he, we wouldn't we wouldn't know about it. We wouldn't know the severity as it is. As you said, there's already there's already so much secrecy still around it. But we would just have absolutely no concept of exactly what happened 25 years ago. Well, I mean, you know, what kind of risks was he, was he taking, um, especially getting them out to the media, um, not just from the Chinese government, but from I guess the embassy as well, because technically, wasn't he kind of um, compromising their mission in China? Yeah, absolutely. So the risk wasn't just to him. Obviously, he could get arrested, arrested. he could get put in jail, get kicked out of the country. The tensions were just so high. No one knew what was happening to activists in those prisons uh, or when they were arrested. He could have been killed if, uh, if he was founded by the wrong people. But also the embassy staff... Were, were at threat as well of being kicked out of the country, of having no Australian uh, connection there in, in Beijing at all and not being able to get any information through to our government back home. There's a big thing about secrecy, as we saw on Foreign Correspondent a few weeks ago reporting on the situation in Xinjiang. How does he feel now about um, government rules in place banning local media and Chinese people from talking about Tiananmen Square? Yeah, I think he was still quite disappointed that 25 years on there is still this shroud of, of silence, I guess, that people in China aren't allowed to talk about it. And now 
a similar situation is sort of happening again. We're not at a massacre point, thankfully, but uh, there is that, that feel of an uprising. And unless, in Gregson's perspective, unless we have these conversations, the country is not going to move forward and it can't become what so many of its people want it to become and it just gets stuck in a bit of a rut. This is Sunday Takeaway. Uh, thanks, Fred and Kai. That's Kai Hanley, Mornings Producer at ABC Central West New South Wales, and Fred Hooper, cross-media reporter for 936 ABC Hobart. You can find out more about Ricky Murding's journey and hear the rest of his chat to Fred and read Gregson Edwards' eyewitness account of the Tiananmen Square massacre by clicking on their names on our website or our Facebook page. And why not friend us while you're there and don't keep us a secret? This is Sunday Takeover on ABC Local Radio with Sunil Badami. Now, I have to share a little bit of a secret with you. For the last few months, we've been really lucky to have an intern helping us out on Sunday Takeaway, and today it's her last day. In fact, this is her episode. All the songs, all the interviews, all the guests have been organised, written and produced by our wonderful intern, Emma Rennie, and she joins me in the studio. Hi, Emma. Hey, Sunil. How's it going? <laughs> well, you know, another day at work. How's it been for you working on Sunday Takeaway? Oh, this has been just such an incredible experience. I've heard some really amazing stories that you don't hear otherwise, and you speak to some really interesting people, yourself included. But I was going to say also... present company accepted. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. No, it's been such an incredible experience for me. What's been your favourite part of hanging out with The Takeaway? Oh, just meeting some of the really interesting people that I wouldn't have spoken to otherwise. Jeff Ostling was a real highlight when he came in and, you know, took half his clothes off just so he could show us all these amazing tattoos that he was covered in. What do you got planned after you leave the takeaway, Emma? Well, I'm finishing my uni degree now as a journalism student, so I have to try and find a job in the real world. So it's just going to be a matter of trying to volunteer as much as I can to get my skills up and then send out all the resumes I can print off. I've no doubt you'll get a great job. Thank you so much for being part of The Takeaway, Emma. And thank you for being part of The Takeaway and hanging out with us today. If you're trying to keep a secret in your life, I hope it's a fun one, not a dark one. In the meantime, you can download this and every program to follow from iTunes or our website. Just Google us. Coming up, it's Sunday evenings with James O'Loughlin.